the best way to destroy the credibility and the truthfulness of a message is by destroying the credibility of the messenger. Do you agree? Does that sound right? The best way to destroy the credibility of a message and its truthfulness is by destroying the credibility of the messenger. I want you to do a piece of Ignatian theology with me this morning. I want you to imagine that you are actually part of Jesus' family while he was here on earth. Right? Dad? Joseph. Mum? Mary. There's quite a big gap between them in terms of age. Maybe as much as 30 years. It's quite traditional in those days. You were one of the brothers of which there were a few, and there were probably traditionally sisters as well. And you had an elder brother. I say elder brother, the oldest. And there was something quite unique and different about him. Not easy to understand, not easy to get along with. And then unfortunately, well, I say unfortunately, but in reality, about the time when he got to uh, 30 years old, this elder brother, Jesus, suddenly had these pretensions. He suddenly had some sort of religious freakiness about him and he set off on a ministry and the, the family were very confused. Well, Mary seemed to understand it better than anyone else. By then, sadly, Joseph was dead. But the brothers and the sisters were just really seriously, first of all, they were embarrassed and then they were trying to work out what they could do and then they were angry. Because he set about a preaching tour about the age of 30. And he called disciples, which was what rabbis, teachers in those days did. And you can read the story it's in the New Testament. You've read the New Testament, yes? Some of you? You do know a little bit. You've got a little hint about where I might be going. I hope. The eldest, well, the one next to Jesus, his name was James. Not James and John, the two disciples, but James. And you don't hear about him in the, in the Gospels. Well, you do, tangentially, as I'll explain. And we're going to be looking at James, heroes of the faith, someone who was a messenger, someone we could follow. If you're going to believe his word, then you better believe him. It got so bad within a few months of Jesus beginning his ministry that the family set out to, uh, to get him back. Let me just read to you, whether you, if you think I'm making this story up, from Mark's gospel. Jesus had just appointed his 12. He'd sent them out to, uh, to minister uh, then Jesus said, this is Mark chapter 3, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered 
so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Gosh, that must have been a disaster. Too many people at the fellowship meal. They didn't even get anything to eat. When the family heard about this, and word spreads, they went to take charge of him. The word is very powerful in Greek. For they said he's out of his mind. Well, he didn't, didn't convince his own family, did he? This Jesus. Or did he? The story's there in the New Testament, and some of what I'm saying is probably a little bit of theological license, and it's not far from the truth. But towards the end of his ministry, as he went to Jerusalem, as we know, to die, something began to change for James. Don't know how much he'd listened to Jesus. Don't know how much he'd thought. Don't know if maybe his mother had said, look, James, there's something very unique. Because remember, Mary knew in a way that no one else ever knew that Jesus was utterly unique. He had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. She knew that, yes? She knew that. Whether she said anything to James, I do not have any license to tell you. Maybe she did. Maybe she did. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Tragically, his life ends on a Roman gibbet. Not the first to be crucified, not the last. And James... By this time, something rather remarkable is going on in his heart. And he's reflecting. And something takes place that must clearly have been the work of the Holy Spirit because when he knows that Jesus has been killed, being a strict Jew, like Jesus has been, going to the synagogue regularly, he had actually vowed, and we have... Uh, apocryphal attestation for this he had actually vowed it's in the gospel of the Hebrews which you don't want to read in your quiet time but is reasonably reliable James had actually vowed he would never ever after Jesus died eat again until he saw Jesus so maybe he'd been listening to what Jesus was saying about his resurrection we don't know but he had vowed he would starve himself to death. And Jesus appeared to him. We have that in the Gospel of the Hebrews. If you go and look at that material. And they shared communion together like we have. Can you imagine Jesus serving your communion to his brother? Do you think that might not have turned his world even more upside down. It did. It won't surprise you to know that James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Old camel knees, they called him, because he was so passionate about praying and he prayed on his knees, which is something I struggle to do these days, getting off my knees, but he certainly did. He always prayed on his knees. 
And so seriously did he do it that he had, had calloused knees. The leader of the church, you look at Galatians 1, you look at Acts 12, he was held in incredible respect, perfectly understandable. He was a very devout Jew. He had been through a remarkable experience. He'd seen Jesus. Jesus had appeared to him. He presides over the first council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And then within 10 years, he dies a martyr's death. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And unless the high priest was anxious to get rid of James. He was such an effective communicator. Remember, if you want to kill the message, you kill the messenger. So he took the opportunity because Albinus, the Roman procurator, died. And they didn't have emails and mobiles in those days. Do I need to explain that? It took a few months to get the message back to Rome for his replacement called Festus who arrived. And in the meantime, Ananus had James stoned to death. Tragically, there's another tradition that he was pushed off a high tower, first of all, and wasn't fully killed, and they stoned him to death. And if you've ever seen a stoning, well, I trust you never have. That's the man. Do you think you could trust him? Do you think you believe his message? Yes? Are you there? You think you believe his message? A man like that, who's given his life. Uh, and it's a major, major confession experience. He was uh, a little bit like Paul. He was definitely on the other side for a long time. John Smith, last... Sunday, as he introduced this series, talked about five coaching tips. Well, clearly James didn't go to Spurgeon's College because there are five points here that have to be looked at uh, from James. And uh, grateful that Mike read to us from uh, J.B. Phillips. The message is great too. And five pieces of pastoral advice. They're instructions, but frankly, it'll be up to you whether you take any notice, right? These are the five things that James said. First of all, and if you've got your Bibles open, you might like to follow, you might like to, to listen. The first thing he said is very profound. Now, God has given you a very powerful message. You have two ears all of you, and you have one mouth. Yes? This is profound. Even the Sunday school could get hold of this. Do you think it's possible that God might be saying something to you in terms of the way he created us? I hope you know where I'm going with this. You should do. Scripture tells us, James tells us very clearly, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and even slower to become angry. 
you have two ears because God wants you to listen twice as much as you speak. Now, don't say that that is an ex-cathedra statement. It isn't. But I'm making a very important point. You know what listening is? I teach listening to theological students. Listening is not thinking about what you're going to say when the other person has stopped speaking. And none of us are guilty, are we? <laughs> no, you've never, ever, ever made that mistake. Part of the problems, whether you're talking about interpersonal relationships or almost anything, comes from the fact that people stop listening. In fact, they don't even start listening sometimes. So you need to listen. Twice as much, if I may give you at least a, a hint, twice as much as you speak. Now, I know you, most of you see me when I'm speaking, but I'm actually quite a si quiet and solitary animal on my own. But it applies to me. Listen twice as much as you speak. And for God's sake and your own sake, don't get angry quickly. Now, I know, you know, we know a little bit about Myers-Briggs and different temperaments. Some of us have got temperaments. Some of us are much more volatile than others. But for God's sake and your own sake, don't get angry quickly. It usually, almost always, is counterproductive. And spiritually, it's counterproductive. God can get angry. It's a different word for anger. It's a more settled, uh, non-emotional response, but human beings can get angry and it can be very dangerous and very destructive. Because when people are angry, sometimes they tell the truth. That's difficult enough. Sometimes they lie through their back teeth because they say things that will hurt. Anyone else? You've done that. Of course you have. You're a human being and a human speaker. Be quick to listen and slow to anger. What time am I meant to finish? I've forgotten when you've... We did say ten past. We did say ten past. Okay. Number two. Look at what it says here. Verse 21. This is the second coaching tip. Get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which will save you. It's a instruction of something you've got to do. Now, of course, you'll have the aid of God's Holy Spirit to do this, but it's very powerful. It's two Greek words, ruperia and parisia, and it talks about, uh, ruperia is the word that describes di dirty, filthy clothes, things that stain the outside, and parisia is the word that describes the inner uh, pollution of our lives. Do you know one of the greatest temptations, there was some research done on this amongst Baptist ministers, the greatest temptation the Baptist ministers have is to watch pornography. Don't be offended. It'll be a temptation for you men and for you women as well. It's not an exclusive preserve of men. I just pick that out of the ether. There are a thousand other things 
that can cause you to feel dirty and filthy. Not just moral sin, but hidden sins, hatred in the heart, revenge. Get rid of it. Now, it's not, this is not salvation by works. This is not something you can do on your own. But there is this, this is something where the Holy Spirit will cooperate with you when you're working at that. Most of the young ministers, and not so young ministers that I relate to in a, a sort of moderating, mentoring role, it's one of the things I ask them. What are you reading? What are you looking at? Right? To you, what are you reading? What are you looking at? Spend more time watching television, Coronation Street, God spare us, <laughs> than you do in the scriptures. Now, I'm not playing a legalistic game about you must read your Bible for two hours every day. I'm simply saying that what you read will affect your heart. It does. It may not be visible, it may not even be obvious, it may be cumulative, but it is real. So get rid of all moral filth, something you are, with God's help, able to do. Number three, and it's in verse 22, I read to you again. Don't merely listen to the word uh, and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like that graphic image of a man looking in the mirror and forgetting what he looks like. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do it, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed. If you want to know the key to blessedness, it's to keep on looking into the mirror, the right mirror, not the physical mirror, the spiritual mirror, that God will hold up and constantly keep before you. And there are two key words in Greek, fascinating, that James would use this. One is intently and the other is continuously. Can you see it? So what you do intently, intentionally, consciously with intensity, what you focus on is key. My wife finds me very frustrating in all sorts of ways. Yeah, no, you don't need to laugh, but it is true. <laughs> but if I get focused on something, I'm in a different world, right? Now, we're not all the same temperamentally. I understand that. But you need to focus on the Word of God and the truth of God and the keys that are for your own spiritual health. And you need to do that continuously. John again was reminding us ever so helpfully last Sunday, about perseverance, about keeping going. The reasons why perseverance is, is so important in the Christian life, because we're living in a society that is decadent and godless, and unless I'm sensing things wrongly, it's slipping down the slippery slope. If you've ever read The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, you'll know what's happening in our Western society, but I digress. That's certainly not in my script. Fourthly, this is what it says. If anyone considers himself rigid, uh, religious and yet doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. 
I was in the High Court several years ago in London supporting the claim to, of an immigrant who had come out of Iran, a distant connection of the Shah. And she and her sister and her brother came to faith through uh, the ministry of the church we were in, Wolverhampton. And I was taken down to the High Court to support their application. And I was stood in the dock, which is the only time I've ever stood in the dock. And uh, the high priest, uh, high priest. <laughs> ah, you are awake, that's good. That was a mistake. The judge, very high flying sort of gentleman, um, looked as if he went to Eton, but that's another story. He said to me, uh, Reverend Farron, you, they've told the story of their conversion and their baptism. How genuine do you think they are? And I said, how long have I got? He said, as long as you need, but be careful what you say. So I spoke for Two, no, not two hours. <laughs> I was tempted. I, I probably kept myself to about 15 minutes because he was asking me about the gospel. Uh, and I had the privilege of speaking, not only to support them, but to speak about the gospel and about Jesus. What you say, back to what we were saying at the beginning, what you say can be so destructive but it can be so healing and constructive, right? And if I wanted to know about your spirituality, I would probably, this is from pastoral experience, traveling all around the world, uh, it's not just a, a merely English cultural understanding, I would want to know what you do with money, what you do with power, and what you do with your tongue. Of course, you need to live with the person to know that, don't you? Right? Now, this is the Word of God. This is a coaching tip. It's a pastoral instruction. You must interpret it carefully. Keep a tight rein on your tongue. And then finally... In verse 27, he defines pure religion. And pure religion involves two contradictory statements. It involves social involvement and it involves uh, social uh, detachment. I'm not going to ask you if you go visiting the orphans and the widows, uh, though we do some of that in the church. Good. You have to contextualize this in the, in the world in which uh, James was living, Jesus has just died. The two dominant social needs were orphans, if you go to India you see the same issue today, and Africa. Orphans and widows, same issue in, in Africa or wherever you go in the world. Probably not the same issue here because we have uh, social services, don't we? But that, even that is only partially the answer. You need to find, I need to find, and it will be different for each one of us, 
what social involvement means for you as a Christian here in our culture. If you want to be pure and faultless, you need in some way to be looking after orphans and widows. Now please, what does that mean for you? That's your homework. And your attempted essays will be back on my desk next Sunday morning, along with the registration forms if you haven't already done that. <laughs> I'm being serious. I think you know I'm being serious. And it's not for me to say, I know what God's told me to do with my life and I'm doing it by his grace. Now what's God told you to do in terms of social involvement? I used to use a phrase, I still do use the phrase, uh, we're, we're in the world but we're not of the world and that's true but dangerously easy to misunderstand. Christians by and large, they are on the side of being too detached from the world. And by the world, I don't mean the world, the godless part, I'm talking about the people who are not yet in faith. So that's your first instruction. But the second is, in doing that, please be aware that you are to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. So you are told to be in the world, but you are definitely told not to be polluted by the world. It's back to this get rid of ruperia, get rid of moral filth. Listen, wherever you move in the world today, in the godless society where Jesus is not owned, where his will and law is not respected, you will easily, easily be polluted. I remember when I first started work as a 17-year-old and worked in a medical lab uh, which is where my biochemistry comes from originally. There was a big group, and it was mainly men. And I, re I recall one evening time, we'd all been for a, for a swim at the end of work and had our statutory English chip butties uh, uh, as a, to sort of put some of the calories back in. And then the guys, I was very new there, and the youngest started into, and men do this, it's a way of showing off. Men show off? Yes, they do, yes, they do. Telling the most filthy jokes. The doctor came in. I knew he was at least sympathetic to the fact that I was a Christian. He, he wouldn't have been a practicing Christian himself, but the, this thing was going on. And then all of a sudden, he stepped in. And he used a phrase which I still study. His name was Dr. Sinjin. He was the forensic pathologist for the whole of the Northwest. I had a lot to do with him for several years when I was in biochemistry. But he stepped in and protected me because he used a word to all these guys who sort of cowed as he spoke. You are polluting the atmosphere and you are polluting our young John. Well, listen, I don't think God's ever protected me as dramatically as that in other circumstances, but please be aware, this is for those of you who 
are out on the coal face, as we say, in the real world, that that world can morally pollute you. You need to keep yourself clean. I know when I've been involved in deep and intense counseling, I have often, in fact, on one occasion, I can recome the story and the details don't matter. They were horrendous and time is gone. I came back and said to Rachel, I'm sorry, I've just got to go and have a shower. Such was the degree of moral filth I felt because I'd so identified with this person. Probably I was, I'd over-identified, but that's, you learn as you go along. The message, and the credibility of the message rests on the messenger. messenger. Okay, and I've given you, not me, this is Jesus' brother, you'll see him one day. And there's a lot of things I want to ask him about because there's some other parts of James which are quite interesting. And he said five things to you. Be quick to listen. Slow to anger. You get rid of moral filth in your life. The key to blessedness is intensity and continuousness. Watch your tongue. And if you're going to really demonstrate pure religion, then it will involve social involvement for you, whatever that is. And that might be the work you're doing. It might be outside the work you're doing. But please keep yourself pure from a broken and a polluted world.